This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon and welcome everybody one more time. Uh, we have, you know, we had an amazing day yesterday. We had an amazing morning and afternoon this today. But we have really an amazing panel out here. Uh, I was asked to pick uh, three of the most articulate chancellors, and I picked three of the chancellors. <laughs> and they couldn't come. <laughs> they are right here. I picked chancellors who are not only articulate, but are also my friends. So we have a great panel out here. To my left is Linda Katehi, uh, uh. chancellor of UC Davis. A uh, real visionary, a real leader in her area, which is electrical engineering. To her left is Chancellor Dorothy Leland, another visionary, uh, Chancellor of UC Merced. And she has done an amazing job of creating a vision for UC Merced with a billion dollar construction portfolio that's really going to transform UC Merced, but it's going to transform the whole region around where UC Merced is. And it's going to be truly amazing. So you've got to wait and watch this in the next three to four years. To her left, is my good friend, Chancellor of UC Riverside, Kim Wilcox, who also is doing an amazing job at transforming Riverside and expanding the faculty. When everybody thinks things cannot be done, you gotta go talk to Kim, and Kim figures out how is it gonna be done. So these three amazing people are not only leading their campuses, they're also the pillars of the UC system in terms of defining the future, uh, especially when it comes to energy and the environment. So I'm gonna have each one of them say about three or four minutes of an opening statement, uh, followed by some brief Q&A from my side. In the meantime, you guys go get a glass of water. <laughs> uh, Now's the time for a but, break. But be ready to ask questions, because you are the questions that we want to ask. It's not about me. So let me go start with Linda. So I just wanted to uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. It's always uh, wonderful to uh, be on a panel with Pradeep. Uh, he and I know each other for many, many years. and. Um, also, I wanted to say um, that you see uh, San Diego has done some amazing work in this area, so we are very pleased to be here and talk about uh, climate change. What I wanted to say is that um, UC Davis has been working in the area of sustainability and climate change from many, various aspects of it since the, its own beginnings. And it has really made a serious commitment in sustainability and climate change, of course, part of it um, in many, many ways. It's not just part of what we teach in our classrooms or the research that we do in our laboratories. It is about um, living sustainability and living the principles of it every day. And so we're very committed to um, really proving to everybody who has questioned our ability to become carbon-free by 2025 that we can do it that we can do it in a way that is um, also cost-effective. So it can be implemented, it can be adapted by many other organizations, and hopefully it can, um, those uh, processes or products we are using or um, local university policies that we put in place can be ev eventually extended and can really help the state um, continue to become a leader in this important area. So I wanted to thank you for being here. No, thank you for being here. Great. Dorothy? Uh, likewise, um, I appreciate being invited. And um, this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, but I am really glad that the students got equal time with the chancellors. Because as a matter of fact, for 
um, at least a decade now, students across the nation have been the conscience of many of their campuses with respect to uh, sustainability and carbon and uh, climate neutrality. And, and I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, so UC Merced is only 10 years old. And um, only being 10 years old, we had an opportunity to do it right from the beginning. Um, we didn't always do it right, but we've done a lot right. Um, and for example, um, we um, have a campus where every single building is LEED certified. The lowest certification is silver, and it was for the first in the nation um, sort of trailer, prefab is the word, um, a LEED silver certification. Um, we have nine golds and uh, seven platinums. Um, we've also uh, focused, and our uh, $1.1 billion construction for the second phase of the development of the campus. Um, the winning proposer has, will have to do um, serious, um, interesting, and innovative uh, proposals around um, helping us achieve our uh, carbon neutrality and uh, uh, climate goals. So um, we're committed to it. Um, we have faculty who are doing um, really uh, critical research. You heard from, I think, three of them today, so I won't repeat their stories. And interestingly enough, we've started a, um, a course for uh, mainly undergraduate students where um, they learn about uh, energy efficient design through uh, a course that, that focuses them, them to become um, they, they actually become LEED certified through this course, and their practicum um, is the buildings on our campus that are going up and mm. will continue to go up through about 2020. So it's a wonderful opportunity for our students to not only be involved in an enterprise that um, fit, meets their passion, but to come out of it with something very useful. So thank you, Buddy. Thanks, Dorothy. Uh, okay. Thanks, and again, thanks, Pradeep, uh, for the opportunity. Um, and thank OP. <laughs> now, of course, I always thank the president. Um, it, it, listening today, a couple of things have struck me. One is the repeated reference to living laboratory uh, in terms of the University of California, and the other is scale. And uh, I think those are important themes uh, sitting in a chancellor's seat to think about both of them and, and kind of reflecting on our day to day. The living laboratory piece. It's easy enough on the research side. I've talked to some colleagues, some faculty colleagues here in the last, during the breaks, about connections that they've made even here, but uh, across the last several months uh, on research projects. And that's kind of what you would expect. There's another set of, of living laboratory, though, that sometimes is a little below the radar screen, and that's the, the business operations and the utilities. Uh, those, those leaders, those vice chancellors, those uh, directors across the, the 10 campuses are also talking about how we collectively can get together. And sitting and looking here, I know Merced and Davis are way ahead of us on biogas. Uh, that's something that we could benefit from. You're way ahead of us on solar power. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm proud to say in Riverside, if you come to Riverside on a nice, cool 105-degree August day, <laughs> none of our main chillers are running that cool our campus because we only run those at night when the peaks are down in a cooperative venture with our public utility, and we store the water, the cool water, in tanks in the hill. Uh, so... Each of us has something that's unique, can bring to the conversation, but that's not scale. Uh, a campus of 20 to 30,000 students is not scale in a world of several billion. 
uh, across 10 of us, if we take the biogas and scale it across 10 different environments, if we take the solar and scale across, we really can become a much more informed operation, but uh, an operation that can inform the world. But that's great, actually. I don't know how many of you know, but uh, each one of our campuses, except for Merced right now, but in five years, that's going to change, too. We run more infrastructure than most cities. So UC San Diego, for example, is 50,000 people on this 1,200-acre property every day. Mm-hmm. We run the largest daycare in San Diego, run the largest fleet services, bigger than Enterprise, bigger than Hertz in San Diego, and I can just 90% of our power is generated right here. So I think what Kim's talking about is, besides being responsible for educating students and creating a vision, we're also running this large infrastructure. So let's just talk about that. So how does one think about managing, let's just talk about, let's say, new buildings. It's great to say that, uh, you know, Merced, it's a new campus, more power to you, LEED certified. Let's talk about Davis, which has been around. <laughs> no, seriously, right? It's Davis, true. which has been around for more than, for nearly 70, 80 years now, right? So talk a little bit about how do you make the transformation to go from where we are to where you want to be and be like... So the, the transition is very critical because we do have very old infrastructure. And uh, because of uh, UC Davis's history, the fact that we... We're already 50 years old when we started as a university, and we had with us a lot of deferred maintenance. We do have a lot of deferred maintenance, and of course, very old buildings that tend to need a lot of cooling and a lot of heating, and in fact, that even does not work very well. So what we decided to do is, first of all, try to make sure that we can reduce our um, use of electricity from the grid. So we developed uh, the largest um, solar panel farm on, on a campus in North America. And this is going to give us, to give you just the specific numbers, it, it will um, reduce um, our electricity by 60% by 2017. And it really um, helps us create about, generate about 33 million kilowatt hours of electricity every year. Mm. So it is the equivalent of 14% of the electricity that we have on the UC Davis campus, which is we have close to 60-plus thousand people who come every day. So uh, this this is just a 75-acre farm. And we have a lot more um, space because also we can farm it. It's not like that we took it away. We have a lot of land that we use for farming, but we can farm. And we have also decided what kind of farming to do on these 75 acres. So it is possible for farmers to do the same. Um, Also, we have the first renewable energy anaerobic biodigester, Mm. which is going to make our campus by 2017 waste-free. And this is a huge thing. In fact, we just, uh, that, um, it was about two years ago when it started working and not at full capacity, but it helps us um, transform 50 tons of organic waste a day into energy and is connected with a grid. So we can turn energy back into the grid. And um, of course, it's going to reduce, or it is reducing the greenhouse gas emissions by 10,000 tons a year. So these are the things that we are doing primarily to reduce our reliance on energy, which is very important, trying to reduce the amount of waste we produce and we turn it into energy and, of course, reduces the carbon footprint. And also we have a lighting um, initiative, which we started at the time when 
we were losing a lot of money that, uh, because the state economy was really bad. So that really shows the commitment of the UC, because all of the campuses have done similar, have initiated similar initiatives during a very difficult, financially speaking, time. And the energy initiative also is by 2018 or so will reduce the total reliance of our lighting on energy by almost 70%. That's and great. the investment we've made was close to 15 million at the time. We are capturing back this in uh, cost, I mean reduced cost of electricity hmm. that comes. That's pretty impressive. So, so let's see Riverside. What are you doing? Uh, it's not a competition here, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, let me go back to your question, though. We are one team. <laughs> let me go back to your question, and that was, a, and you referenced campuses versus cities. Yeah. Right. And I think there's an important point there, uh, and mm-hmm. Linda just touched on it. In some ways, we do operate like um, city managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you try to find cost savings that are cost-effective. We're doing the same thing. Uh, we're, we're going through the entire campus replacing every light with LED, mm-hmm. every single light on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that'll reduce our lighting cost by 40%. Again, we're not competing with Davis. Uh, uh, and, and that looks yeah. much, like, that's much like what a city manager would do. But two-thirds of our energy use on campus is actually in our research labs. Right. And that's something a city manager doesn't think about. That's something a mayor doesn't think about. So we're also going, like Willie Sutton, you rob mm-hmm. banks because that's where the money is, we're going to labs because that's where the energy use is. Um, up to maybe 2% of our total campus energy use is in ultra-low temperature freezers. Mm-hmm. So finding new efficient freezers, we have a program in place to do that, we can cut our energy use on campus by probably 1% just in freezers alone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to count the behavioral piece. Uh, you'd never wash a half a load of dishes at home. It would be a terrible waste of money and, and energy. But I'm guessing there's lots of times on campus autoclaves aren't quite full when we run mm-hmm. them. Right. Another sure. huge loss of energy. And for us, it's maybe up to 2 million gallons of water, potable water, that gets flushed down the drain every time uh, over a year. So, so there's a set of our responsibilities that do look like the norm, and there's another set that right. is very different, different from, and, and it's finding the, the, the best advantages of both. That's, uh, right, so I want to come back to that question uh, in a second. But Dorothy, I want to ask you a different question. You are in an extremely enviable and also an extremely fortunate situation where you get to define your future today. So when you think about LEED certified buildings, which I think is a great vision, when you think about that, Tell us a little bit about the cost-benefit analysis and the cost recovery. Why would we pay more today so that we get everything back in five years or seven years? How did you think about this? Well, it, it does cost you more up front, and, um, but you recoup that cost um, depending on the building, but between five to seven years. Hmm. Okay. And, um, and then there is the cost of less impact, environmental impact. So you have the, the good that you do as well by having those buildings. So it is more costly up front, and every time you're value engineering, it's painful because you're value engineering out of building something that somebody wants. And not everybody uh, is capable of saying, well, let's look seven to ten years out and know that these buildings, we will have recouped that upfront expenditure by doing these things. But it's true. And being ten years old, we have data on our initial buildings that 
chose that. Oh, I see. Okay. So, Kim, let me start with you this time. I want you raised an interesting point. So, we talked about infrastructure. People use infrastructure. There are social issues. There are people behavior issues, uh, especially faculty behavior. I think what you were talking about. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit more about how do you change that behavior to tell somebody that you know you're going to be more efficient in the way you use your refrigerator, the freezing systems, the cooling systems, whatever. What is it that you're doing to inculcate a new sense of responsibility, ownership amongst the faculty, given that? And I'm just assuming that since you don't work on an RCM, RCM is a resource, sorry, responsibility center management model, where electricity is paid for centrally, everything is paid for centrally, then why would anybody want to change? So walk us through how does that happen. Uh, I'll give you two <laughs> key, key parts of it. Uh, one, of course, are our students. Um, our students are coming into the labs for the first time with a different ethos from many of the rest of us. And so that's been an important catalyst for change on our part. And a place where a bit of instruction and, and ex explanation can go a long ways in changing behavior in the laboratory. Because as you know, most of the faculty members don't run the autoclaves as often as the undergraduate and graduate students do. Um, and you can go on through the rest of, of the operations. So that's one piece. The other piece is, I think, a more general kind of notion. And that is, for all of us, we go through our lives day to day kind of living them. And we don't always think about everything that we do. So keeping simple messages, I think, is powerful. The, the example I use regularly is, if we walked through our, our house and the light was on in the dining room, we would stop and turn it off. And if we had teenagers, we would tell them, don't leave the light on in the dining room. And they would not listen. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but, but how many times, if we are honest with ourselves, how many times have each of us walked down a hallway on our campus, past a conference room where the light was on? Right. Or a classroom where the light was on? And we don't reach in and turn it off. So for me, that's what I, I ask everyone to just stop and turn the light off and they go by. And, and that simple act leads to other kinds of acts. So for me, it's a simple message and rely on our students. Okay, so you're not, okay, let me go to Linda because I just want to get to the point of at what point do you make individuals responsible for paying their own bills? And at that point, so the savings that accrue really show up. Linda, would... So, so let me... Um, <laughs> yes, I would like to address that because this is very critical. But before I, uh, I come to this, let me just say that in the future, if I may just pick up on the uh, last discussion we had with Dorothy, there is a possibility of designing buildings that are totally off the grid in everything in terms of uh, mm -hmm. infrastructure, which is going to save so much money because when we build a new building... Um, almost 18% of this cost goes into extending the infrastructure, mm -hmm. whether it is water, energy, waste, and so forth. So we are building, we are designing our first building to be totally off the infrastructure. The only infrastructure piece that is going to be is the road that is going to lead to it. And I think that's how you can capture some of the cost. But let's talk a little bit about culture. So it is culture and education, of course, important. It's the ethos, and I understand that. But it's also the personal responsibility. And I think, uh, I'll tell you what we've learned from West Village, which is a uh, community of 5,000 people, a net zero energy community that we started building about uh, three, four years ago. And we are still in the process of finishing it up. So we're at 82% energy efficiency. By the time it's all built, we're going to be to 100%. We've learned from the early, we have about 3,000 students who are living in the community. We still have 2,000 more to go. But um, we've learned that if the, um, if the cost of uh, energy, whether it's lights, heating, and so forth, is not showing explicitly and they do mm -hmm. not pay for it, then they do not conserve. 
So we, because in the beginning, the cost of uh, that was part of the rent, and everybody was leaving lights on, and the air conditioning was down to 68 degrees in the middle of the summer, and then 80 degrees in the winter. And uh, we decided to really pull this cost out and have them paid separately. And it changed overnight. Because the savings are important to people, all right, at the end. And I think, so you need to do a combination of things. It's not just the training is extremely important and the culture. And that's the one thing that is scalable, I think, from everything that we do as institutions. How to change the culture is something we can export to the community and then somehow help the community with that. So, Dorothy, you get to define T equal to zero. How will you raise a set of students? How would you raise a set of students, hire new faculty with the right culture embedded at T equal to zero? That way... <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not in most of our hiring criteria. Um, but we have a lot. I mean, we have really passionate, um, excellent, multidisciplinary faculty looking on it. You know, I think behavioral change, though, is one of the most critical questions to consider in all of this discussion. We live in a really drought-stricken era, uh, area of California. And I'm a California native. From I grew up in Southern California, and I've heard about droughts all my life. It hasn't done a whole lot to really deeply change behavior in the culture about water usage. You know, we cut back in the bad times, and then people, a lot of people go back to their bad habits. So somehow, as educational institutions, we really need to make it part of our responsibility to figure out how to better motivate and educate not only our students, but the general public about behavioral changes, um, not just around water usage, but um, other things that matter to them. So, um, and some things you do on campuses may not be transportable to the general public. We had a competition a couple years in our residence hall. Students love competitions. You know, and the prize was something like a pizza party. Who could get the most water reduction in a month? Um, and, um, and, and students have different campaigns. The one I loved the most was take a shower with your friend. You know, I'm not sure if we could export that to conservative parts of Orange okay. County. But I want to. <laughs> Before we start dreaming too much. Uh... But you've got to, I mean, it makes I... a point. <laughs> I guess so. Okay, so before I go on to the next question, I want to talk about a little bit about, you know, on our campus we have this net zero building, and it's been running for a year and a half, and they're trying to figure out if it's, it's called the Craig Venter Institute. It's a life sciences research lab, and if you think about it, creating a life sciences research lab at net zero is between very, very difficult to, I would say, nearly impossible. So we are excited to see what the final measurements show. But I think it's going to be close to net zero. Water, electricity, everything is net zero. Even the road infrastructure is net zero. I gave them no roads. So that way... <laughs> no, that's not How true. did you do that? They just sit in the building, and that's it. They, they keep on the road. Exactly. They don't have to leave. Anyway, let's talk... <laughs> We're going to come to the audience in a second, but let's talk a little bit about innovative public-private partnerships, because clearly funding is an issue. The state uh, disinvestment, uh, lack of money in the UC system, at the same time our aspirations have 
only grown higher instead of uh, become smaller. So given that, let's talk a little bit about innovative public-private partnerships and how do we very creatively make up for this lack of funding and the impediments at the same time achieve the aspirations. So, do you want to take a crack, Linda? Or? Sure. I mean, uh, th- this is one of the ways we have tried. All right? This is uh, the public-private partnership. It's not a new thing, obviously. We have been doing this for, for different um, needs that we've had on our campus for buildings and, and so forth, for new technologies. I think there are two ways of doing that. One, on one end, we are a place that can really start using technologies that they are not really ready yet mm. to go out. So we can experiment with things. I mean, this is the space we are. Our students will not complain if something it, it, it is in an experimental stage and does not work. Our faculty and staff know that we are these kinds of institutions. So I think some of the most winning partnerships have been the ones where you connect with a private sector, you try something for the first time, and then in the process also you improve it. So the biodigester we just developed mm-hmm. was exactly like that. We did not pay a lot of money for it, but it was the first time that it was done in that scale. And so we are a test bed mm-hmm. for it. And it's working very well. But now, with the data that we are collecting, then this partner, uh, the com- company, will be able then to reproduce it and sell it. And they already right. have many orders, but they wanted to test it in that scale. So these are something that in the new building we are talking about, and we are looking to incorporating batteries in the basement of the building. So we make it, we store energy when we produce more and so forth, have it available. Uh, there are a number of companies that are very interested in providing those. And of course, we can use these batteries of that size in experimental states, right. but we can work with them. And so this is one. The other is what Dorothy is trying to do at um, Merced. And then it's something that others may also uh, follow, like our campus is thinking for that as well, that kind of uh, partnership with the private sector when we are building uh, buildings and infrastructure. Uh, There are multiple things that we can do, and we have really tried a lot, mm. but I just gave you a little oh, That's great. So, Dorothy, talk a little bit about this very innovative partnership strategy you're following to really build an energy-efficient infrastructure. Well, it's, it's just a, um, a procurement process that's been used uh, for uh, infrastructure projects such as um, bridges, and, bridges and courthouses, but, but not in um, higher education in the United States. So, so, and it's um, mainly a version, a modified version of design, build, operate, maintain, mm-hmm. finance. Um, and, um, but unlike the lease, lease back projects that all of you are familiar with, um, we never lose ownership of our property. Right. We enter into a 39-year contract with um, a single entity that has um, um, master planning, uh, architect, design, uh, maintenance and um, equity components and they get paid back over time in two ways we get buildings that go up on time according to our specifications they get milestone payments right so in doing so at can the, you at s- the end the right. one of the advantages is that over time a 39 year contract um, they don't make their full profit to the end of that contract, and it requires that the buildings be maintained over time right. to our specifications, uh, or else there's significant financial penalties. So we're looking forward both to the proprietary technology right. that can be brought to bear 
through this uh, competitive process, but also in 39 years not facing a backlog of deferred maintenance. So let me just add one more final comment to this. So if you think about uh, everything we do, we do a lot of manufacturing, which is the process of converting one molecule into a different molecule. right? So one of the visions that we've been talking about, actually Bernard and I have been talking about this for a while now, is to imagine the manufacturing processes of the future where everything input is biological. There's no inorganic. It's all biological, and everything output is what we have right now. And that leads to sustainability, energy efficiency. Nature knows how to do this really well. You manufacture protein sitting right here without too much crackers and cracking materials and cracking tube. No, seriously, right? So we need to understand this. And I think the UC in general, um, and this is plug for my UC San Diego because we are so good at life sciences, <laughs> but so is uh, actually Davis and so is Riverside. And we all, so. <laughs> But I think, I think we have the ability as a UC to really transform the world the way we see it and the way we want to live in it, right? So with that said, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate this. Thank you to my colleagues. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.